morning's Old Testament reading is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 33 through 36. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Let's listen together for the word of God. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, on the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now forfeited and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that the Lord, I the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I the Lord have spoken, and I will do it. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. I have spoken, and I will do it. Let's continue to listen to for the word of the Lord that comes to us from the gospel today according to John. It says in your um, bulletin we're going to have verses 5 through 15, but I want to add uh, the first four verses as well because there's some important context, I think, in those verses that I came across as I was preparing this week. So let's continue to listen for God's word for us here today. After this, Jesus went over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus turned and said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for all these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. Philip answered, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they all sat down, about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled up 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. But when Jesus realized that they were about to make, come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me now in a moment of prayer? Let us pray. Speak now, Lord, for your people are hungry for your word. Open our ears that we may hear your encouragement. Open our eyes that we may see anew the possibilities and the hope laid for us in Christ Jesus. And may the words of my mouth and indeed the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen.
Well, I hope everyone here had a good Thanksgiving, nice and full, yes? On Friday morning, uh, we all went out for a walk to walk it off in the park, uh, and I saw my neighbor Chris out walking his dog, and I, I said, hello, Chris, did you have a good Thanksgiving? And he said, it was the best. He said, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday because everyone is so happy. And I agree. I think any holiday where the primary action is eating is a good holiday. And it's funny because this text, this sermon text here today, is about just such a holy day. It's a miracle story. In John's gospel, miracles are referred to as signs. They point to and and instruct about God and about Christ, about the kingdom of heaven. They function in a similar way as the parables in the other three gospels. There, Jesus will teach via an image about what God or the kingdom of heaven is like. But in John's gospel, we see Jesus doing what the kingdom of heaven is like. And while this is often shorthanded as the feeding of the 5,000, which would indeed be a miracle, this story is really about a special meal on a special day shared by a special assembly of people. It is a lot like Thanksgiving dinner than we expect. You see, the scripture tells us that Jesus had traveled across the Sea of Galilee He's in what other gospel writers often refer to as the land of the Gerasenes. This is unfamiliar territory to him. He's a stranger there. And this large crowd had had gathered to meet him when he gets there. In other words, Jesus is not the host of this meal. Jesus is a stranger in a strange land. He's the guest who came from out of town, who braved that Wednesday afternoon traffic to get where he needed to go on Thanksgiving morning. When he arrives, he sees... He sees that the house is not just full, but it is overflowing. There are friends and relations galore. There's the younger cousins and the older cousins. There's the aunt who likes to gossip. There's the uncle who won't stop talking about politics, even though everyone wants him to. Grandpa's asleep over in the corner. The nieces and nephews are crying about a forgotten stuffed animal, asking when we're going to eat. The house is full. People are getting hungry. And Jesus turns to one of his companions and says, how do you think we're going to feed all these people? To which Philip replies, beats me. But then something wonderful happens. Someone digs an old folding table out of the basement and they set it up. And one of the neighbors shows up with a few metal folding chairs. The seat cushions on them are ripped, but they're sturdy enough. They'll do. The dining room chairs get intermingled with a hodgepodge of other chairs from all the other parts of the house. A sheet is thrown over the table as a tablecloth. There's no need for a centerpiece. This is not that kind of Thanksgiving. Bit by bit, it slowly comes together until there is a place for everyone. And Jesus is the one who hollers out over the din. You know that din in a house full of people. Jesus hollers over the din. It's time to eat. Come to the table. He tells everyone to sit down which is a really weird detail to include in a Bible story. Usually, if there's any details in a Bible story, they, they tend to be instructive. So why, why include that Jesus told them all to sit down? Well, I think it's because 
Jesus didn't want this to be one of those scenes that we might remember from the photos of the Great Depression where there were people in a long line waiting to get their bread, where people have to come begging and waiting and standing for scraps. This is not that kind of meal. This is a sit-down dinner where he and his disciples will be the ones who go out and serve the people. So Jesus and Philip and Andrew and the rest of them, they all go into the kitchen to find some food. And there they find this collection of frazzled grandmas who are assembling the meal. And I say frazzled because they weren't expecting all these people either. And they don't know how they're going to feed them all. And it's embarrassing when you're a grandma who doesn't know how they're going to feed everyone in the house. How could they be expected, though, to feed so many? But it's actually worse than that. Because imagine that everyone sits down at the table and the disciples go in to serve the meal and they go into the kitchen and there is nothing in there. Nothing prepared. Everyone is sitting and waiting. And the table is empty. How are we going to feed these hungry people? Then one of the little nephews pops up from the kids' table, runs out to the car, and grabs his Paw Patrol lunchbox and brings it inside because he or his mom, more likely, packed snacks to bring with because when you have little kids, you never go anywhere without snacks. And now, now he brings that and he hands the lunchbox to Jesus. Imagine now Jesus coming to the head of the table instead of standing over turkey to be carved in that waterfall of carbs and vegetables spreading out before him on the long table. Instead, there's just nothing but a Paw Patrol lunchbox. And everyone looking at him wondering what he's going to do. Jesus says, let us pray. And maybe some of the folks are like, yeah, we definitely need prayer. Maybe others just gawk at him and goes, "Uh, where are the mashed potatoes? But Jesus prays. He offers this simple blessing for what we are about to receive. May the Lord make us truly thankful. And after he had given thanks, he opens the lunchbox and pulls out a morsel of bread. And he breaks off a piece and he hands it to the person to his right. He breaks off a piece and hands it to the person to his left. And he keeps breaking them off and giving them to his disciples. And they keep giving them to people as much as they want. The disciples make their way all the way down to the end of the table where people are sitting on folding chairs. They make their way over to the kids' table where everyone is asking Cousin Joey, how did your mom get all that bread in the lunchbox? But everyone is fed. It's a miracle. And because it's a Thanksgiving dinner, there are leftovers. you got to have leftovers at Thanksgiving. Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to many things in the course of the Gospels. He says it's like a vineyard or a wheat field or like yeast that leavens bread or a pearl of great price. But here we see the sign that the kingdom of heaven is like a sit-down Thanksgiving meal. It is, as Jesus says in other places, more like a gathering of a family than a kingdom. It's a meal where everyone is fed, everyone is happy and full, no matter whether they're the host or an unexpected guest, and there are leftovers. Nothing shall be lost, it says. The leftovers alone 
will feed the people for days to come. And on this last Sunday of the liturgical year, we celebrate that God is indeed the sovereign creator of all things who guides by an invisible grace every manner of this material world. But even more so, we remember that God does not stand aloof and apart from humankind, but shows up on humanity's doorstep as an uninvited and unexpected guest, but then provides something miraculous, a family table around which all of humankind may be gathered, where what is served not only satisfies our material desires, but our deepest spiritual hungers for meaning and purpose in life. And God is so gracious that ours is a God of leftovers, too. Jesus comes into the world to challenge us to address one another as family, as brother, sister, sibling, to recognize that we are kindred spirits, one great global family. And the church aspires to be just that, the church, a family together. And family can certainly be a blessing, but let us not make it into an idol to be worshipped unconditionally. Because the thing about family is, Families are weird. Right? No. Yes, families are weird. Family's weird. It's complicated. Family is strange. Families are a hodgepodge of different people from different generations that are bound together by blood or by choice. But really what makes a family a family, I think, is a, is a set of shared rituals and stories, a common set of traditions that, that has uh, importance and significance to that family. But these always tend to be quirky and idiosyncratic at some level. I want to just take one very basic example. How many of you are, are homemade cranberry sauce folks? Okay, yeah, all right, okay. And how many of you are heathens like me who prefer the stuff out of the can? Specifically the jelly roll. Yeah, obviously. What did you think I was going to say? If it doesn't have ridges, I don't want to eat it, is what I'm saying. There you go. Kelsey gets me. The first time Whitney and I celebrated Thanksgiving dinner together, she made cranberry sauce from scratch. Um, as for me, I had bought a can of ocean spray, cracked it open, sliced it up, put it on a plate. I was ready to go because that's what I'd done since I was a kid. When I was younger, I was a bit of a picky eater. And even though my parents made homemade cranberry sauce every year, they would also supply the good stuff on the side. And I still remember it was always in this oval silver tray. The discs just lined up. You could still see the ridges on the sides. And it was so, so, so good. But of course, as an adult, I didn't want to be rude, so I tried Whitney's homemade cranberry sauce. And lo and behold, it was delicious. And now she makes it every year. In fact, she's so good, I can brag on her because she's not here. I, she's so good at making cranberry sauce that I made the cranberry sauce, but she, basically she made it secondhand. That's how good she is at making cranberry sauce. It came out amazing uh, this year. Yet still, every year on Thanksgiving, I still go out and I buy that can. And it may not always make it to the table, but it's in the cupboard. 
It's there. Because that's the tradition. Here's the thing about traditions. They are idiosyncratic. Sometimes they're shared, but sometimes they're just completely unique. And sometimes they're the source of a certain kind of off-putting and quirky weirdness. Here's how to tell if your tradition is weird in a good way or a bad way. It all comes down to the story behind the tradition. It really does. Is the tradition rooted in something that is essential to your family's identity? Does it have a clear meaning and a purpose today? Does it, does it teach you how to be a part of the family? And here's how I know my cranberry disc tradition is the wrong kind of weird. Because the story I tell about it is the story about a picky kid who would rather have what they want than what is on the table. And that's not a story I want to pass down to my kids. Sometimes traditions that hurt us or limit us need to be ended. And it's a question that every generation has to ask about what traditions are essential and important and what need to be left by the wayside. Because when traditions are upheld for, for no good reason, or when we lose the story that underlies that tradition and we just say, well, that's the way it always has been, well, that creates this uncomfortable and off-putting weirdness that is very difficult to overcome. If a but if a strange ritual can be shared and made intelligible to others, if you can touch their experience somehow, then the weirdness, the weirdness becomes charming. And I think that's true of churches, too. Because church is supposed to be a foretaste of the, of the kingdom of heaven. The church is supposed to be something like a family. And that can be a good thing or, or it can be a bad thing. In the recent book, When Church Stops Working, pastoral theologians Andrew Root and Blair Bertrand point out that when a church is like a family, especially a small church, it, it can make them weird. While it is theologically sound to say that the church is a family, they write, it is sociologically complicated. Small churches tend to have members who are less mobile, and thus the membership role stays steady over time. One or two families can come to dominate the membership, and because they stick around for so long, they tend to make the decisions. Just as you wouldn't invite yourself to someone's house for Thanksgiving, if a church has a few dominant families, you might not feel particularly invited to their house. The people who are there, the family, like how things have been. They find comfort in it, and they have some ownership over the goings-on. But newcomers, not so much. It's hard to appreciate what it's like to be the stranger coming into a place and seeing it with new eyes. It's hard to see things from that outsider perspective when we're deeply invested in being insiders. And a church that is carried on by traditions but has lost the knack for welcoming or telling its story to strangers, that's the kind of church that can turn into the desolate city of the prophet Ezekiel's vision. But this morning, this morning we have a window into the grace of God and what God is able to do when we start to close ourselves off. This is... It's a possibility more than anything else. It's not a 10-point plan or a strategy. It's more like a dream or a hope. 
we get a glimpse of what the strange and unannounced and unaccounted for can do here. This morning we see how God's presence in our midst can take ordinary things and make them extraordinary. But we have to be able to look for it. We may realize that God may be much more present to us in the being of a stranger, a fellow human being who may be close to us, yet still unfamiliar to us. Yet at the same time, they may be family with us. Taking this story to heart as a church family means that we have to open our eyes and our hearts to the possibility that God comes to us as a stranger. And that the kingdom of heaven is something richer and more wonderful even than our fellowship and our traditions can capture. And for those who aren't regular churchgoers, taking this story to heart means considering the possibility that the life you've built for yourself may not actually have enough room in it for all of the possibilities God has in store for you. That maybe taking the time to make space for strangers, even the uniquely strange folks in a church, may enrich your life in ways you may not expect. Because believe it or not, that is not just the gospel for us here today. That is the central theme and message of the Advent season, which we are about to enter into. God comes to earth as a stranger, born on the margins of society, appearing in the peripheral vision of history. Yet God's advent, however weird and unexpected it might be, heralds the possibility of a brighter future. The justice will be done and peace will come to the earth. The possibility for renewal that we could not anticipate, but that we would welcome joyfully. Remember the words of the prophet, I said it, I will do it. To that end, I want to propose doing something a bit different this Advent season here at Union. During our worship, we typically conclude by sharing joys and concerns with one another. And this is useful because we can share the burdens of our hearts as well as our joys to celebrate them with one another. And sharing that is a wonderful part of community. But during the four Sundays of Advent, this year I'd like to invite folks to use that time together, instead to, to share moments when you have witnessed the presence of God, moments of light shining in the darkness, unexpected and unaccounted for graces. It's one thing to experience those moments. It's something else to go out and look for them and to remember them. And it's a whole other thing to actually be able to talk about them, to tell the story. But that is so important. If we're going to be the kind of church that can share its story, we have to practice. And that will be different, and it may even be weird, but weird is not always bad. In this holiday season, we shouldn't shy away from opportunities to, to perform the rituals and tell the stories that give this season its meaning. And the meaning of the season is to search for light in the darkness. For that is the promise of God, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. That a humble meal can reveal the wonder of God, not just to those who are looking for it, but even to strangers who are not necessarily looking for it. 
The miraculous advent of God appears in the world more abundantly than we have any right to expect. But only if we know where to look for it. So don't be afraid of tradition. Don't be afraid of the new and the different. Don't be afraid, but rejoice in the good news of great joy for all the world. Thanks be to God.